0: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. A rare earth's battle. China threatening to withhold minerals essential to the US tech sector. The next, Pablo Escobar, a former Purdue Pharma exec, given a stark warning about the drug OxyContin and Alexa's amnesia. Amazon releases a delete function for voice recordings. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, and I can tell you it is another day in the trade war trenches for us First Movers. Take a look at what we're seeing in terms of the global market action right now. U.S. futures are weaker, global stocks, as you can see, in the red. After Tuesday's late-day sell-off in the United States, we did see stocks closing here in the U.S. at session lows. The blue chips bore the brunt with the Dow falling almost 1% to stocks fell. Of course, bond prices rose. That flight to quality yields on the U.S. 10-year bond dropping to a 19-month low and a down once again in the session today. Expect to hear those renewed questions, the debate about the inverted yield curve, where we see shorter-term interest rates higher the longer-term rates. Is that sending a recessionary signal about the U.S. economy? Well, I can tell you Morgan Stanley thinks perhaps it does. It's placing the U.S. economy on recession watch, saying the economic outlook is, quote, deteriorating and U.S. profits are increasingly at risk. Just echoing Concerns even by the European Central Bank that U.S. stocks might be overvalued here. You know, it's a concern that we've been raising on first move, I think, repeatedly over the past few weeks. Also, U.S. investors appear to be increasingly getting with the picture here, too. New numbers showing investors sinking cash into money market funds, again, going into bonds and cash instruments. This at the largest clip in a year, almost $100 billion, in fact, over the past four weeks. There is, though, a ray of sunshine, and I do want to bring you that too. The U.S. Treasury once again saying that China isn't, or at least refusing to label China as a currency manipulator here. But again, watch that seven level in dollar yuan, because if that breaks, I think all bets are off here. The big worry, of course, though, remains the threat that I mentioned just moments ago, that Chinese threat to limit exports of rare earth minerals. Why do we care? Well, you can ask the question. They're critical to the production of consumer electronics and military equipment in particular here in the United States. So watch Apple And some of the defence names like Boeing, like Lockheed Martin, in the session today. The Chinese media said that Beijing is ready to play the rare earth's card here. The official People's Daily, of course, the mouthpiece, you could argue, for the Chinese government, put it this way. Don't say we didn't warn you. That's where we're going to kick off the drivers. Let's get to it. Paul and Monica joins us live. Paul, great to have you with us. This clearly spooked investors overnight, I think. And the statistics here from the idea of weaponizing these rare earth minerals or metals are quite alarming because China supplies, what, 80% of the imports to the United States.
1: Exactly. These are minerals, Julia, that are notoriously difficult to mine, not necessarily hard to find. So that's really where the rare part comes into play. And a lot of them are coming from China. So I think, uh, you know, many investors may have to uh, take a break from their stock charts to bust out their old periodic table of elements and look at things uh, like cerium and uh, others that are uh, europium, all these weird exotic minerals that are very important and crucial parts of automobiles, defense systems, phones and other electronics. So there could be a big ripple effect on U.S. manufacturers if China were to restrict the um, you know, imports of some of these minerals or the U.S. would have to try and find other places to mine them and that might be a little difficult to do.
0: Yeah, it's just not something that you can substitute, at least in the short to medium term, which is one of the questions. And it just adds, I think, to the nervousness that we saw, Paul. I mentioned uh, yesterday what we saw in the session and the pullback further of bond yields globally, but also here in the United States. I mean, we're now looking at approaching pricing to rate cuts from the Federal Reserve. Are we getting a bit ahead of ourselves here as investors or are these concerns valid? Because again, different messages from the equity markets versus the bond markets here.
1: Yeah, here's the troubling thing, as I see it, uh, Julia. I think that investors aren't ahead of themselves to be worried about a possible slowdown in the uh, U.S. economy as the effects of stimulus fade. The problem, though, is that the job market is still pretty healthy, and we are starting to see some small signs of inflation creep in as well. So at the same time that bond yields are falling, you know, wages have been rising. You could have this potentially stagflation sort of environment, which would really be difficult because then the Fed's hands are tied. What do they do? Do they cut rates? to satisfy the stock market and probably President Trump in order to juice the economy again because there are concerns about slowing growth? Or do they have to worry more about wage pressures and inflation and potentially have to raise rates? I think probably that's the reason why maybe it's premature to think that the Fed is going to do anything. They may sit tight until we get the pendulum swinging more dramatically in one direction, either global recession fears or inflation fears, and then they'll act accordingly depending on which one seems to be the more dominant economic theme.
0: Yeah, you raised such a great point. And we're going to discuss this later on in the show. But I think for now, sit on your hands as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned and just watch the data incredibly closely. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Sticking with the theme here, too, for our second driver, using the strength of an entire nation to come after a private company. What am I talking about? Well, this was the words of Huawei's chief legal officer as the company files a lawsuit against the actions of the United States. Cherise Pham is in Shenzhen. Cherise, great to have you with us. It is a private company, but the United States is arguing that Huawei is effectively the eyes and the ears of the Chinese Communist Party here. And that's the challenge. What good does this lawsuit do? Is it really symbolic only?
2: it is mostly symbolic and greetings from a windy balcony here in shenzhen maybe these are the winds of change that are coming for the trade war we will have to see but huawei really on the defense today here in shenzhen julia really on the on uh, like some heated rhetoric and some fiery language coming from the executives today calling the united states a bully which is of course language that echoes the ministry of foreign affairs so making it look a little bit like the company is in lockstep with beijing but also moving forward with this lawsuit that they filed in March against the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, which essentially bars federal agencies from doing business with Huawei. But of course, that lawsuit was filed before this Commerce Department export ban on the company. And that is the much bigger elephant in the room. So Huawei was hitting back against that, calling that uh, illegal actions from the United States and saying, look, if you are going to hurt us and damage us, it will also hurt you as well. It will not only hurt the 170 countries where we operate and our three billion customers, it will also possibly hurt U.S. customers because, of course, rural uh, carriers use Huawei equipment in their networks. And having to strip Huawei from those networks and use more uh, expensive equipment will result probably in higher bills for Americans. So we are looking forward then, I guess, to to the next things that are going to come out of this company. Julia, yeah, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's a little bit windy. No, no,
0: you're making some great points. I was just going to say, I feel like it's a question of timing here because President Trump has already suggested that Huawei could see some kind of carve out. Uh, as a result of a broader trade deal here. The question is, how long does that trade deal take versus how long Huawei can exist without being able to source US components and and products and the damage that then does on the business more broadly? How long can they go, do you think, without seeing the business materially impacted as a result of these restrictions? Because I think the message from Huawei right now is pretty confused. Well,
2: Huawei out. Huawei is saying that they have been preparing for this for a long time, for years, they said, and they've been stockpiling uh, supplies and diversifying their supply chain in the event that this would happen. Analysts are a little bit divided on how long they have. It, I have seen ranges from three months to one year to keep uh, the production lines going and to continue rolling out their 5G equipment and their smartphones. But of course, that was before I think people started combing through the fine prints of this Commerce Department export ban because you can't replace software on a dime. So this this export ban includes software from Google and it also includes software from American companies that provide updates to the 5G base stations that Huawei is selling to customers as part of these 5G contracts around the world. So this will be crippling not only for Huawei, they don't have a long time to last. Most analysts are saying a long-term ban would be crippling for the company, but it would also be crippling for the global rollout, likely, of 5G.
0: Yeah, the winds of change blowing swiftly, Sharice. I hope you were hanging on there. Get inside. And thank you so much for uh, <laughs> for joining us on the show, as always. Sharice Pham, there. All right. Another challenge company now to the oil giant ExxonMobil bracing for a challenging annual meeting today. Activist investors want more action from the company to tackle things like climate change. Matt Egan has been following this story for us. I do believe that these guys versus the Europeans have always had a far easier ride as far as climate change as far as shifting their businesses to a more environmentally friendly products as far as energy is concerned. What are we expecting to hear from investors and shareholders today, Matt?
3: So we're expecting another battle between big oil and climate activists. But as you're alluding to, unlike in Europe, U.S. oil companies, they're not really giving much ground here. In fact, Exxon won a big victory long before today's annual shareholder meeting in Dallas. Exxon successfully persuaded the SEC to block a shareholder resolution that would have called on the company to um, disclose greenhouse gas emissions targets in line with the Paris Climate Accord. Now, um, Exxon opposed that measure, um, even though you know we actually saw BP's board support the same or a very similar proposal. 99% of BP's shareholders voted in favor of it. And Royal Dutch Shell, they adopted an even more aggressive measure. Now, these shareholder proposals are being put forth by a group called the Climate Action 100. It's a coalition of institutional investors with almost $10 trillion in assets. Now, these shareholders at um, Exxon are now supporting a separate proposal that would call for. Exxon to separate the CEO and chairman titles at the next CEO transition. Now, Exxon, of course, um, opposes this move. They say that um, their board has enough independent directors already and that they are doing enough on climate risk. Chevron is also holding an annual shareholder meeting today, and it also opposes um, a similar proposal that would call for the company to separate the CEO and chairman titles and also calls for the creation of a board level committee on climate risk. Now, you know, I think, Julia, all of this shows this really stark divide between Europe and the United States. European right. oil majors, they've been much more open to engaging with shareholders on climate risk. They're also more open to diversifying their their uh, business models away from fossil fuels a bit and pushing into fossil fuels and wind and even electric car charging. Exxon and Chevron haven't done that. So, Julia, I think no matter how these votes land today, it's clear that this battle is nowhere near over.
0: Yeah, and I just think uh, renewables in the end offer lower shareholder return. So it's about being a profit maximizer. I wonder whether it's a legacy issue. Going back to the BP oil spill and the sensitivities that exist around uh, some of the European names. It's a fascinating one. Matt Egan, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to move on to the next driver. And a stunning warning about a powerful painkilling opioid, OxyContin. A Purdue Farmers, former president, was warned that he risked being seen as the Pablo Escobar of the new millennium. I quote, Jean Cesar uh, joins us now from Norman Oklahoma. Jean, thank you for joining us on the show again. I know you're watching a separate court case that's going on right now in in Oklahoma, but the biggest story here and the challenge with the opioid crisis here remains a very pivotal one. Just explain where this warning came from relating to uh, the former president of Purdue Pharma.
4: Right. You know, there are so many cases in this country that are opioid cases. And we are here in Norman, Oklahoma, because this is the first one to actually go to trial, which in a civil case is really very rare because normally they do settle. That deposition that you just talked about, where it was, uh, Mr. Sackler, a 74 year old physician that undertook a deposition, uh, where he said that a former friend of his had said to him, you know what, you're the, you're the Escovar. Uh, of the industry that is for a case out of ohio that it there are uh, many states have merged together along with tribal nations so that is for that case it has nothing to do with johnson and johnson but saying that this trial purdue pharma settled in march for 270 million dollars so they're no longer a part of this case but in the reality they are a part of this case because i can't tell you how many times The state of Oklahoma focused on them yesterday in relation to Johnson & Johnson because Johnson & Johnson procured the raw narcotic ingredients and sold them to major pharmaceuticals to make their own opioid prescription medication. And so they're saying that Johnson & Johnson was behind the curtain and the others were in front of the curtain but they collaborated together they marketed it together and they were in a sense as one I want you to listen to a little bit of that opening statement yesterday from the state of Oklahoma
3: There's a very simple truth with opioids: If you over supply will die. The reason we have an opioid crisis is that simple.
4: Now Johnson and Johnson and Janssen is really focused on limiting this trial to the two medications that they produced and sold right here in Oklahoma because they brought out yesterday that at the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center that never has anyone been admitted for addiction taking their drugs or more or less died from their drugs. The state of Oklahoma says you can't limit it to just their medications. This was a big picture. They sold those narcotics to all the other companies and therefore it is the big picture, not the small picture. And Johnson & Johnson created that public nuisance right here also in the state of Oklahoma.
0: Yeah, Jean, you make some great points about the importance of the supply chain here and the linkages, but also the fact that is this one, the first one that goes to trial, the key that unlocks and has implications for all the other trials to come. We'll see. Uh, Jean Casara is there. Thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to date with that story. Mm-hmm. All right, let's move on and uh, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other news headlines that we are watching around the world. Almost 40 million Americans remain under threat from extreme weather in the coming hours, a day after a tornado destroyed dozens of homes in the state of Kansas. Severe weather has been battering the U.S. heartland for 13 days now. The man many see as the frontrunner to be Britain's next prime minister has been ordered to appear in court Boris Johnson is accused of lying to the public in the run-up to the Brexit referendum back in 2016. Specifically, by claiming EU membership cost the UK, quote, £350 million per week. The figure was emblazoned on a bus Johnson used during the campaign. The former mayor of London is a leading contender to replace Theresa May as prime minister when she steps down next month. His legal team calls the accusations a political stunt. Over to Israel now, when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's party has agreed to merge with a smaller centre-right party. The move boosts their voter base. This as Prime Minister Netanyahu is less than a day to form a new coalition. Missing the deadline could lead to fresh elections being called. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but still to come up in the air. When will the 737 MAX be able to fly again? Boeing CEO speaks. But does he provide any answers? And Alexa, lose your memory. Amazon smart speaker gets a case of amnesia in a bid to improve privacy. We'll have all the details next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and First Move, where I'm joined by Christina Hooper. She's Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Tell me what you're thinking of what we're seeing here, I mean bond yields coming down globally, but in particular here in the United States and a bit of stock weakness too. What are we seeing here? Well, what we're seeing is concerns about global
5: growth really that have been driven by the realization that this U.S.-China trade war is getting worse and worse.
0: I mean, you said it when you were last on with me, you said, look, you don't really believe a trade deal here is going to have much bite. If the president's pushing for it, then it's going to take time to reach a deal here.
5: And actually, I think we're at the point now where I have diminished expectations that we'll see any kind of deal, unless the U.S. is willing to capitulate and take very minor concessions around the narrowing of a trade deficit from China. So expect this to be more acrimonious going forward. What's the
0: likelihood that he does? Because we know this president watches the stock market very closely. He watches the data very closely, too. Is that what it's going to take for him to go, OK, we just need to reach a deal here, do you think?
5: Well, I think ultimately it's going to be a political calculation. Which is going to be better for re-election in 2020? Because actually, a U.S.-China trade war pulls very well, although it hurts the economy. And so I think that will ultimately be the determination.
0: What's in the price here? I mean, we're now, what, 5% off the, the recent highs for the S&P 500. I mean, bond markets are telling us that there's a recession warning, I think, flashing here. What do you think in the price as far as expectations of some kind of future trade deal? Is there more downside to come here for stocks?
5: I think there's certainly more downside to come, and it can always be aggravated by program trading. Uh, It's very hard to actually price in exactly what a trade war means for economic growth, but we know that the longer it lasts, the longer we have trade policy uncertainty, economic policy uncertainty, business investment declines. And so that can have an impact for a while. Uh, But again, it's very hard to quantify, so usually we see an overreaction and then something of a correction over time. We are not yet to the overreaction phase, but maybe that will happen today.
0: What about the overreaction phase in the bond market? Because we're starting to look at pricing a second rate cut now from the Federal Reserve in 2019. I know you've said one cut perhaps is a possibility. What do we think when the market starts to price in two rate cuts?
5: Well, certainly, the bond market is, I think, a more accurate gauge of fear than the VIX. And so it is showing accurately the fear in the market. Um, And, of course, also suggests that we could see two rate hikes. I think we are likely to see... Yeah, sorry, two cuts. (laughs) Just to be clear. That was a Freudian slip. Um, So we're definitely likely to see one rate cut just based on the breakdown in the U.S.-Sino trade relationship. Um, but certainly, too, is possible if we see a deterioration in the economic data. We're starting to see that, because even in the U.S., the PMIs have been disappointing. Uh, the ISM Manufacturing Index, the New Order sub-index, the last reading was very disappointing. So we want to follow that closely. Certainly there's reason for concern. I also do believe, though, that we're likely to get reassuring language from the Fed. Uh, Richard Clarida speaks tomorrow and he could provide some reassurances. Keep in mind the FOMC minutes don't, but that meeting occurred before
0: this breakdown. I mean, we spoke to Eric Rosengren of the Boston Fed last week and he said, look, you know, this is one of the big risks out there and we're watching it very, very closely. You mentioned something there that was very fascinating to me. You said it's a better reflection. The bond markets a better reflection of the fear. Is it a better reflection of the fundamentals, though? And to your point about the PMIs, what do you think here? And the other point to make, I think, as well, and we were talking about this earlier on in the show, tariffs are inflationary. What's the risk that the Fed wants to cut rates, thinks it needs to? But as we see the price impact of tariffs coming in, the inflation numbers aren't allowing them to do so. Well, I think the Fed is not as worried
5: about inflation. Uh, It thinks that we're in a relatively low inflation environment, and in fact, so much so that they're talking about raising inflation targets. So I don't think that's going to be an immediate concern. I think much more the immediate concern is what kind of negative impact will trade wars have on economic growth. And so from that perspective, the bond market is pricing in fear and certainly, to a certain extent, fundamentals. (laughs) I think it's also pricing in... And um, maybe not the worst-case scenario, but a worse-case scenario than um, the more optimistic
0: stock market. Yeah, we'll see how long that continues. Christina, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Christina Hooper there, the uh, Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. You heard it there, some cautiousness, clearly, in what we're seeing from uh, U.S. futures as we get to count down to the market open this morning. Plenty more to come, including a look at what the CEO of Boeing is saying, too. Stay with us. More to come on First Moves. Welcome back to First Moves Live from the Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell in Wednesday's session and we were expecting stocks to come under pressure here in the United States once again continuation of Tuesday's late-day slide of course and that's exactly what we're getting a lot of concerning headlines as we've been discussing throughout the show the big fear that China will perhaps retaliate with a ban on rare earth exports that hitting consumer electronic products here in the United States. The message from Beijing state media saying don't say we didn't warn you. Also a warning from Morgan Stanley too concerned about the risk of a recession here in the United States too. All of these things feeding in more broadly to what we're seeing in the markets, a flight to safety in bond markets, pressure on the energy markets too. A weekday for oil as you can see both Brent and WTI off some 2%. WTI, in fact, is off more than 8% this month, with a number of those in the market saying that we may have seen the highs for 2019 as far as oil prices are concerned. All right, let's bring it back to the stock markets now and the global movers that we're watching in the session. Kraft Heinz under pressure again. The shares closed down more than 6% in the session on Tuesday, hitting a fresh record low. It appears the company got caught in a downdraft of shares of S.J.M. Smucker, Kellogg, and Campbell Soup's also falling, amid a decline in demand for packaged food goods. Down a further 0.8 of a percent in the session this morning. Apple. Also in focus, Citi slashing its share price target for Apple to $205 based on concerns about iPhone sales in China amid the broader trade war. The shares have now fallen more than 11% this month. Apple is on track to post its worst month of the year so far down. A further 1% in the session so far. Dick Sporting Goods bucking the broader trend. Q1 earnings and revenues beating expectations. They reported a net income of $57.5 million. The company also Key raised its full-year outlook with the same-store sales flat for the quarter, but it still beat estimates of a 1.3% decline up some three percent in the session so actually significantly outperforming the broader equity markets here in the us all right let's hone in on boeing because i mentioned that before the market opened the ceo has been talking about the potential return of the max 737 jets to the skies claire sebastian was in the room listening claire what did he have to say any signs of a potential timeline here to get them back up there No, Julia, no uh, exact timeline, although he did say they are working with the
6: FAA on an hourly and daily basis uh, to get this done. No clear timeline, though, uh, as I said. But some other uh, interesting nuggets. He talked about some of the difficult questions that Boeing has been facing about the 737 MAX. He talked about the certification process by the FAA that's come under a lot of scrutiny. That's where they delegate some of the authority to Boeing's own engineers. He said he has a lot of confidence in that process, but he's working with the FAA as they review it, and he's set up an internal board within Boeing to review that as well. And he did say that, that some of those learning opportunities might trickle down to other planes like the 777X, which is their uh, wide body jet that's set for service uh, in 2020. He also Julia, uh, talked about working with customers uh, of the 737 MAX who've been disrupted uh, by the grounding of that fleet. And he said uh, in terms of compensation, cash might be part of the solution. So that uh, was an interesting nugget. But but long term, Julia, what I found really interesting is he's still bullish on this plane. He says that he doesn't see any change long term uh, to, to the demand and the production for the 737 MAX. So he was, you know, he was clearly trying to restore confidence in this plane. But, but ultimately, he's, he's confident long term uh, that it will still be a driving force for customers.
0: I think he has to say that, though. This is such a pivotal part of their order book of the story. Even at this stage, with the concerns of regulators, of pilots, even customers here, I don't really think he's got a choice, Claire absolutely not i
6: mean it was a constant refrain julia throughout this speech which was almost an hour long i'd say about 75 percent of it dedicated to the 737. Max, he said repeatedly when asked about the company's finances, about their guidance going forward, that, that their laser focus at the moment is getting the 737 uh, back up and running uh, and 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 doing so safely. He talked in detail as well about how that's going to work. They've obviously got this fleet grounded. They're having to uh, store the planes. He said every plane that returns to the sky is going to be its own individual uh, event based on tail number. They have teams deployed uh, with every plane. Uh, but, but obviously there are confidence issues. We don't know how the global regulators are going to deal with this, whether they're going to require more training, which could push
0: out the timeline of its return to skies uh, even further. Yeah, I'll give you one guess. Claire Sebastian, great job. Thank you so much for following that for us. All right, so I want to move on now to the big fintech deal of the week, of course, the tie-up between the global payments firm and Total System Services. Now, this is the third time we've seen a tie of consolidation in this sector so far this year but this wasn't a panic move I spoke to the CEO Jeff Sloan yesterday and he said look these two companies have been talking for a long while now and there's all sorts of uh, complementary aspects to this deal what's more fascinating to me though is how he pointed out the differences in technology in this space between Asia between Europe and what we've got even here in the United States and that lies at the heart of where the growth opportunities are listen in
7: The more ways you can pay for things, we like to say you can pay anywhere you like, any time of the day on any device, and that's good news for us. And that's really the way to think about our business.
0: You talk about 60% of the business being tech-enabled. What does that mean in practice?
7: It means we're really selling a technology solution, so we're selling software to the merchant, or we're partnering with a software company to sell payments to the merchant. And the opposite of that is really relationship-based. That means we're getting a worm referral from a bank, for example, but it's not based on a technology sale. It's based on a relationship uh, relationship sale. And that business for us today is about 60% of the company is technology enabled. We think we can take that to 75 or 80% of the company over the next few years. We're always going to have a very good relationship base because this is a people-based business as every technology company is. But I think technology is going to c- c- uh, continue to grow faster. Um, uh, than the rest of the methods of acceptance.
0: Is that where the growth opportunity is and ultimately? I mean, you've described the facial recognition technology over in Asia and whether or not that comes to the United States, but you're doing other things in Europe as well. I mean, even as a, a Londoner, I know that you're involved in the technology even just to get into the subway stations there. There's all sorts of advanced technology that we have even in Europe that, that isn't used in the United States. Is that an opportunity here for you too?
7: Yeah, absolutely right. So you're finally, if you're finally seeing contactless here in the United States <laughs> (laughs) after many years of it leading in Europe with the tube, and also, by the way, in Asia Pacific. So we have the tube at Global Payments um, in the UK, and we have many transit systems around the world. And you're finally seeing uh, that come here. And I think the reason for that is most of our payment systems in the United States are very efficient already. So most of these solutions are looking to solve a problem, but if it's really not broken, it's very hard for these solutions to get penetration into an existing base. Another way to think about how we grow is exposure to faster growth markets. So we've gone into most recently Mexico in a right. partnership with HSBC. We went to Austria and Continental Europe with Erstebank a number of years ago. That's the other way we grow our business.
0: Is there enough space given the consolidation that we're seeing for all of the, the big players now that are being created to to grow, to make headway, or is this a fierce battle that we'll end up with even further consolidation, do you think?
7: Well, it's always a dogfight every day. And a scale business consolidation is a natural element of a scale business. But I'd say if you back up, to $1.9 trillion business is the number I saw today from McKinsey. So there's plenty of room, I think, for everyone to grow. And largely who we're all taking share from is cash and check. Right. The way to think about our business is the same source of tailwind that we have going into any given year is two to 300 basis points because there's less cash and check and there's more electronic payments. And then add that to GDP... And you should be growing at a pretty good rate. So, I think there's plenty of avenues of growth. What I like about where we are is that we're distinctive in our distribution and we're selling unique technologies, and that's the way to think about it. And
0: that's what's unique to your business in particular versus all the others. And actually, you've enhanced that with this deal.
7: Yeah, so the key thing on this transaction is that we're a pure play. So, unlike some of our competitors in the more recent deals, they're also selling mortgages, they're also selling bank accounts. Those may be very fine businesses, but we're a pure play and we're only selling payments. The reason that's important is in every business, when you go to make a capital decision for budgeting every year, something's going to give. You can only fund a certain number of things. Ours is all funding payments. We don't have to worry about, gee, I'm funding a mortgage business. You can't fund payments this year. So I think having critical mass at scale and payments, therefore, is a really important thing. Do you
0: think that makes you um, less exposed to business cycles, in particular, the fact that you're a pure play? I mean, people will always spend money, even if they're incrementally in each transaction, spending less.
7: So 40% of our revenue we think today is pretty economically resilient. Yes. And by that I mean we have every Burger King in the United States, every Tim Hortons in Canada. Uh, we have a lot of gas stations in the United States, but it's not based on the price of gas, it's just based on buying it's gas. It's transactions.
0: It's yeah. transactions. It's kind of like
7: a few cents per gallon, that kind of thing. Uh, we have 40,000 K-12 through schools, a third of the universities in the United States using our software. So as a result, we think we're pretty resilient because as long as your child um, is going to K through K-12 school, As long as your son or daughter is going to university, as long as you're getting food at Burger King. And one would argue in a bad economic environment, you're more likely to go to uh, quick service restaurants than not. Um, In those environments, I know things will be fine for a business.
0: A fascinating industry and a fascinating sector. Wait and watch for further consolidation to come, I think. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. Just into CNN, the man in charge of the Russian investigation and the man, who, of course, who stayed silent about this investigation so far is about to make a statement. Special counsel Robert Mueller will speak at 11 a.m. Eastern time today. It'll be on the investigation into Russian interference into the 2016 presidential election. And CNN will, of course, bring that to you as it begins. That at 11 a.m. Eastern, a statement finally from Bob Mueller, of course, at the heart and the head of the Russian investigation into interference in the 2016 election. All right, let's move on. The U.S. state of Arkansas is open for business. That's the message from the governor, Asa Hutchinson. It's a pivotal time for the state, which has seen exports of agricultural products to China damaged by the ongoing tariff war. I sat down with the governor to discuss what the state is doing to diversify and to attract global investors.
8: Well, we're in New York to talk about uh, the exciting things happening in Arkansas in terms of foreign direct investment, in terms of company expansions, in terms of the our legislature just finished. We lowered taxes, both yes. corporate taxes, individual income taxes. We raised teacher pay. Uh, so we accomplished so much, and uh, we're taking advantage of that opportunity to showcase what we've done and hopefully attract more investment in Arkansas. Uh, creating uh, over 90,000 jobs, it's a great opportunity and a great business climate.
0: And just to make the point, you're, uh, you run a balanced budget, oh. so you are actually finding the money from other areas, it's not just about extra spending.
8: Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. That's something that's mandated under our constitution is in Arkansas we balance the budget and we've actually started creating a surplus so we can put some of that in savings, creating a long-term reserve fund. Uh, the economy might not stay strong forever, so we want to make sure we manage it carefully. And that's an attraction in and of itself to business because they don't want to be in an unstable environment You know right. where uh, the state goes into deficit spending, there's pension fund issues. So we make sure we manage it carefully in Arkansas, it's stable, it's consistent, and it can be relied upon.
0: And you're achieving success. I mean, even just in the last two months, you've attracted millions of dollars worth of investment. Talk me through this. And where is this money coming from?
8: Well, we just had a series of, of announcements. Uh, part of it is our aero defense industry yes. that's expanding in South Arkansas, from Aerojet, Rocketdyne, uh, and uh, other companies. Uh, and then you've also got uh, uh, the Czech Republic company CZ. That's a invest in arkansas building a manufacturing facility for the uh... first time that they have in north america it's going to be right there in arkansas so all of these combined really shows uh, growth expansions and uh... we hope it catches on
0: what you can't escape is that agriculture is arkansas's largest industry sector it adds around sixteen billion dollars to the state's economy each year soybeans are their largest crop, and prices, of course, have fallen to their lowest levels in a decade. Before the trade war hit, 60 percent of the state's soybeans were shipped to China. As a result, the governor argues, it's vital for his state to have open access to trade with that nation.
8: First of all, we export 90 percent of our soybean crop goes out of the country, 60 percent of that goes to China. But there's also the lost opportunity that uh, we're a great rice producer. Fifty percent of all the rice in the United States comes from Arkansas. We were looking at China as the new export market. Obviously, that subsides as a possibility in the midst of the trade war. And then you've got the decline of the soybean prices. China's looking to other countries like Brazil to make their soybean purchases. Uh, And so it's hurt us Uh, in Arkansas. We understand what the president is doing. And uh, we believe we need to have a better trading relationship with China, but the end result needs to be, first of all, low tariffs, zero tariffs, hopefully, uh, open markets, and secondly, enforcement uh, mechanisms. And uh, that is tough on the Chinese because they don't like transparency, and transparency is a necessary part of enforcement. Uh, And so I understand where the president's going, we hope the end result is. Low tariffs and uh, better enforcement capability.
0: Do you trust the president to find that balance? Because, as you point out, it's it's quite delicate.
8: It is, but you have to go on his track record first of all. And uh, the new NAFTA agreement is a success story. It needed to be done. Former presidents hasn't been able to do that. He did it. I want Congress to, uh, the Senate to ratify that, which is critically important. And so. If we can have the end result of a successful agreement like that, then hats off to the president. And so we're patient, and, uh, but we do hope that we can draw these negotiations with China to a conclusion soon uh, and in a way that uh, gives better transparency, better enforcement, but open markets.
0: Five Chinese companies have previously made commitments to invest in the state. However, amid the ongoing trade tensions, I asked the governor if he's worried that the uncertainty will make them reluctant to follow through or invest in the future.
8: Investors, whether they're individual companies or countries, uh, have to invest based upon stability and certainty in the future. Right now, we have uncertainty in the global markets. Uh, That's not good for anyone. And so we have to create that new environment. From an Arkansas standpoint, uh, I've been to uh, China three times. Uh, We've recruited uh, five companies. We had zero companies when I became governor. Now we have five companies that have either invested or looking to invest uh, in Arkansas. And that is reshoring manufacturing. That's bringing manufacturing back from China to the United States. This is a good thing, but the uncertainty has put some of those on pause has uh, delayed some of them Uh, but uh, you know and so everybody is looking at uh, let's end this uh, global tension and uh, let's get back to the business that we're good at and uh, we welcome those kind of foreign investments to a state like arkansas
0: interesting so that's actually where we're going to wrap up the interview because we do have a huge asian audience in particular but a global audience too so the message right now from from your state and from the governor here is we're open for business, come and look at what we're doing here because it's a business-friendly environment.
8: Absolutely. Uh, We build those relationships, we uh, develop policy that's friendly to business, and uh, we recognize that uh, we've got a manufacturing talent in Arkansas that is needed and that uh, helps them to grow their business right in our state.
0: Come and look us up. (laughs) Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, governor. All right. So we're going to take a quick break. But up next, forget Alexa. Well, the information anyway. Amazon introducing new privacy options. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move and a look at today's boardroom brief. Qualcomm has asked a U.S. federal judge to put her antitrust decision on hold while it prepares to appeal. The firm is accused of squeezing out rivals in the smartphone chip market. Qualcomm argues that any business changes it would have to make in order to comply with the ruling would be too difficult to undo should it win that appeal. The world's biggest steelmaker, ArcelorMittal, has announced it will cut yet more of its European production. It blamed weak demand and high levels of imports. Its shares are falling, as you can see, in Amsterdam. Now, forget it, Alexa. Amazon has introduced new privacy options for its voice controlled assistant that will allow users to delete the latest commands. Anna Stewart has more. Anna, great to have you with us. What do we mean by latest commands? How forgetful is Alexa?
9: <laughs> At this stage, as of today, Alexa can be forgetful for the last 24 hours. On command by saying, Alexa deleted everything I said today, which frankly would be great for real life foot in mouth situations. And in two weeks' time, you'll be able to say, Alexa, delete what I just said, and we'll just go for that last command. Now, clearly, this is a great move by Amazon to try and assuage concerns about privacy. There have been so many reports and worries about Alexa. Now, This is new, but you could always actually uh, opt out of Amazon using your data, uh, using the privacy settings. You could also uh, delete some of those recordings using those settings as well. But this does make it easier. And there have been a lot of concerns. Recently, we found out that not only does Amazon collect the recordings that you use with Alexa, the conversations you have at home, but also there is a group of employees who do listen to certain clips from what you're asking at home to help. I would stress with Alexa's voice recognition. But listen, who wants to have their personal conversations not only recorded
0: to you, but listened to you by absolute strangers? Yeah, but they do have people, don't they? They've admitted they've got people that listen into mm. some of these recordings to try and improve Alexa's handling of the commands it gets. So what happens to those people? Do they simply not get access? And if you don't do this every day, recordings are still made and kept.
9: Well, you have to wonder whether this idea that they're going to make it easier for people to have their commands deleted, will people really take it up? Is it more of an exercise in getting consumers happier with the products so that they invite Alexa back home? Will they really use it? I suspect they'll still have plenty of data to use and they do need that data, it's incredibly valuable. But I just wonder whether this is enough for consumers across the board with Google, Facebook, there are huge concerns all over about how our data is used. You can learn so much from what someone likes to eat, what they like to wear, what music they like to listen to. It can be manipulated not just by these companies that we may begin to trust, but of course, if they get hacked by bad actors, by rogue governments, could it be, could your data be manipulated against you so that you buy products that you don't need? Or of course, work on your political bias. So lots of big concerns out there. I'm not sure if this will be enough, but it's definitely an interesting development.
0: Yeah, I think my uh, amnesia is more superior to Alexa's, quite frankly, and I'd forget to tell it <laughs> to forget. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, a reminder of the news that we heard this hour. Special Counsel Robert Mueller will speak at 11 a.m. Eastern time this morning. He's the man in charge of the Russian investigation, of course, and for two years until today has never spoken about the investigation or, of course, the Attorney General's handling of the conclusion. So one hour from now, we will hear finally from Bob Muller. All right, a quick look as we wrap up the show here at what we're seeing. Pressure on stock markets once again. Pressure on bond deals as well. Some real nervousness out there in the markets right now. We'll continue to watch those trade headlines. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Thank you for watching.